Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. The house was so full I could get no seat, but peered at their majesties through the crowd in the doors of the boxes. The king, the queen, and five princesses, with their boxes full of maids of honor, ladies-in-waiting, ladies of the bedchamber, and such like. I was surprised to see his majesty pleased with the flattery so grossly offered, as the whole gang of actors and actresses several times came out and roared out, God save the king, and rule Britannia. A stranger would have thought the audience a French army pointing their guns at the royal guests, every person having an opera glass leveled at them. All I could hear was hurrah, bravo, encore. John Aspinwall, 1809. Two hundred years ago, in the second decade of the 19th century, the world was a strange, fascinating, and precarious place. It was a time of global conflict and uneasy peace. A time of great environmental change. A time of disaster and miracles, anomalies and mysteries. It was a time when our modern world began to emerge, and a time like almost no other in history. This podcast is about stories, true stories, of this remarkable era. This is the Second Decade Podcast. My name is Sean Munger. I'm a historian, an author, teacher, and podcaster. You can visit the website for this podcast at secondDecade.net. Second Decade is spelled out, all one word, two D's in the middle. Thanks for joining me on this journey into the past. Episode 19 curious King George. King George III is one of the greatest and most famous monarchs of Great Britain. He's the third longest reigning monarch in British history, after Elizabeth II, who is still Queen of England today, and Queen Victoria. George III was on the throne for an incredible 59 years and 96 days. From the death of his grandfather, George II, on October 25, 1760, to his own death on January 29, 1820, almost the end of the second decade. The names of not one, but two eras in British history come from George III. The first is obviously the Georgian era, the period of the final four decades of the 18th century. Just mentioning the Georgian era evokes visions of powdered wigs and ladies' long flowing dresses, gilded coaches, candlelit parlors, even a whole style of art and architecture in England. George, or at least his circumstances, also gives the name to the next era of British history, the Regency Era, that twilight world at the close of the 18th century and before the reign of Queen Victoria began in 1837. The setting of 10,000 mediocre romance novels, and a couple of good ones, including those by Jane Austen, who herself lived and wrote in the Regency Era. It's called the Regency Era because it was defined, politically in Great Britain, 
by the fact that George III, at the end of his reign, could not rule in his own right. His son, the Crown Prince, later King George IV, was regent for his father during part of this time. Though the Regency era is generally thought to span a longer era, the actual Regency as a political condition was unique to the second decade. It officially began on the 6th of February, 1811, and ended almost exactly nine years later, with the death of King George III at the age of 81. It's this period of King George's life, the second decade and the last part of his life, that's the subject of tonight's episode. You see, there was something unusual about King George. Many people around him found his behavior at the time, shall we say, curious. He often murmured and mumbled to himself non-stop, sometimes for days on end. He talked to people who weren't there, and sometimes confused living people around him with dead ones. He suffered hallucinations. Sometimes he jumped out of bed naked and ran around the palace. In our own time, a play and a movie have been made about George's curious condition, and the name of it has stuck in popular culture, The Madness of King George. The King of England was, in a word, insane. But that word, insane, is definitely imprecise, and it does George III two disservices, as a man and as a figure in history. First, it carries the stigma of mental illness, a societal attitude that we, in the 21st century, are just starting to become aware of and deal with. And secondly, it obscures the truth about George III's lifelong battle with mental illness, which, like so much else in this period of history, is more complex than it seems at first glance. In telling the story of King George's final decade of life, we have to deal with the man on his own terms. We have to understand and appreciate the suffering and concern of his family, a concern that any family member of someone with mental illness can relate to. And we must appreciate the incredible challenges and importance of the time in which George lived, the momentous events of his reign and the world rapidly changing that he supposedly ruled a significant part of. Join me now as we go back to the 18-teens and consider Curious King George. At the beginning of the second decade, in 1809 and especially 1810, King George III seemed to be at the zenith of his popularity and good fortune. The quote that opened this episode came from an American observer who attended a performance at Covent Garden in London, where the king and his entourage was present. The huzzas and accolades given to the king by the audience were typical of how he was received, an elder statesman, a wise ruler who'd been through a lot but was still quite beloved by his people. In late October 1810, Britain celebrated the king's golden jubilee, celebrating 50 years on the throne. This didn't happen that often in British history. It was comparatively rare for a British monarch to survive on the throne for quite that long. Celebrations were held all throughout the British Empire, in Scotland, in Wales, and all over England. Toasts were drunk to the king and the royal family. His portrait appeared on the wall of countless taverns in town and country. If you were English in 1810, you would have had the king right in your pocket. His stately visage had been stamped on coins for the last 50 years. Indeed, the majority of the population of Great Britain at the beginning of the second decade had never known any monarch other than King George III. He was one of the reliable rocks on which British civilization was based. It's hard to get around how central George was to the era that bears his name. 
Indeed, the 50 years of his rule preceding the Golden Jubilee saw some of the most momentous events in British history, and the history of the world. George was right there in the thick of it. George William Frederick, of the House of Hanover, was born in 1738, the second child of Frederick Louis, the Prince of Wales, who was actually born in Germany. George was always a thoughtful and quiet child, religiously devout throughout his life. He was also a very good student. By the time he was coming of age, the Enlightenment was in full swing, and in fact young George developed a keen interest in science. Later in life he was often seen at the Royal Observatory, and sometimes conducted scientific experiments of his own. At first, it seemed that if George was ever to be King of England, he'd have to wait a while. His father was the heir apparent, son of George's grandfather, King George II, who came to the throne in 1727. George II didn't have much interest in his grandkids, and it turns out he didn't much like his son, the Prince of Wales. Frederick and George II feuded constantly, and there was a long political wrangling involving this minister or that minister, none of which we need to get into. In 1751, at the age of 44, the Prince of Wales got hit by something, a tennis ball, a cricket bat, something, and died suddenly. The young man who would be King George III, then 13, was suddenly heir to the throne. Five years later, in 1756, Britain became involved in a world war. The Seven Years' War, or what was called in North America the French and Indian War, was a pretty fierce worldwide struggle, mainly between Britain and France but involving allies and colonies all over the world, from India to Quebec. This war would shape the fortunes of the Western world, particularly those of the American colonies. The American Revolution was a direct outgrowth of this conflict. George II didn't live to see peace come. On the morning of October 25, 1760, the king got up, drank some hot chocolate, and then went to go have a poop. A few minutes later, he suffered an aneurysm, fell off the toilet, and was carried to his bed where he died shortly thereafter. George II is the last British monarch to be buried in Westminster Abbey. The reign of the new King George III was tumultuous from the start. There's no way it couldn't be, having inherited a world war. The British government was also in transition during this time, with constant struggles between Parliament and the Crown. George watched as a revolving door of governments and prime ministers spun its way through Whitehall in the 1760s and 1770s. The Brits won the Seven Years' War, and peace came in 1763, but George was soon faced with a new crisis, revolution. Most of what Americans think they know about King George III comes from the revolution. The Declaration of Independence, in setting out its long train of abuses of the British crown, is basically a howl of rage against George, what with his quartering acts and his taxation without representation. In truth, George was hardly the thundering tyrant that Thomas Jefferson and Patrick Henry made him out to be. The American Revolution was, at its core, a failure of communication, a failure of understanding. The British, who had wanted to reorganize their now much expanded and very expensive empire after the Seven Years' War, failed to understand that the American colony's interests diverged from their own, especially their economic interests. For their part, Jefferson and the revolutionaries failed to understand how the war had changed the world, and especially the British Empire. This is all way beyond the scope of this podcast. George III personally had very little responsibility for the policies that caused the revolution. In any event, he was undoubtedly the British monarch who lost the American colonies. In 1783, when he'd been on the throne 23 years, the British government signed the Treaty of Paris, 
ending the Revolutionary War and recognizing the government of the new United States. According to John Adams, who met King George when he came to London as U.S. Ambassador in 1785, the king said to him, quote, I was the last to consent to the separation, but the separation having been made and having become inevitable, I have always said, as I say now, that I would be the first to meet the friendship of the United States as an independent power, end quote. Although he'd had a bout of mental illness as early as 1765, George's mental problems seemed to have begun in earnest in 1788. In the summer of that year, he fell ill with what he and his doctors called a bilious attack, which, given the primitive state of medical knowledge in 1788, could be any number of things. While resting up from his biliousness at a retreat in Cheltenham, his behavior grew even more odd. One morning he went out before dawn and woke up a local priest for a tour of the local cathedral. Another time he accosted a washerwoman and shouted, Good day, good day, pray show me where the fellows sleep. What? What? The king's condition continued to deteriorate. The last straw occurred at Windsor. During dinner with his family, George kept speaking in a low, agitated tone until he suddenly grabbed his son, the Prince of Wales, and threw him against the wall. His wife, Queen Charlotte, lapsed into a hysterical tantrum. The king's courtiers and ministers realized something was seriously wrong. Curiously, George's mental symptoms seemed to coincide with onsets of physical attacks. That fall of 1788, King George had terrible cramps and intestinal problems. Doctors prescribed their favorite late 18th century remedy, laudanum, as well as laxatives. The king became feverish. The queen described him. The veins in his face were swelled. The sound of his voice was dreadful. He often spoke till he was exhausted, and the moment he could recover his breath began again, while the foam ran out of his mouth. The king's illness quickly became a political issue. The question of who to appoint as the king's regent was a political football between William Pitt the Younger, the prime minister, and Charles James Fox, the leader of the opposition party. The ins and outs of this crisis, thankfully, don't concern us. Suffice it to say, in early 1789, it looked apparent that the regent for George would be his son, the Prince of Wales, and this signaled a political defeat for Pitt, who expected to be replaced as prime minister by Fox, his rival. In February 1789, though, just after the bill establishing the regency passed the House of Commons, the news came that the king was on the mend. The regency bill stalled and was never implemented, at least not this time. Pitt remained in office as Prime Minister for another 12 years. The story of the King's recovery, aided by clergyman and physician Francis Willis, is the story that was dramatized in the 1991 play The Madness of George III, which was made into a movie three years later under the title The Madness of King George. Though the immediate crisis was over, this was far from George's last bout of temporary insanity. There was a brief but serious relapse in 1801, which lasted a few weeks. Three years later, in 1804, the illness returned again. The symptoms that preceded it were largely the same as they'd been twice before, a cold or flu-like illness, gout, weakness in his legs, and a gradually advancing disordering of his mind. During this illness, the king sometimes talked for five hours without a break. By the end of February 1804, the new attending doctor, Samuel Simmons, chief of St. Luke's Hospital for Lunatics, yes, that's what it was really called, Dr. Simmons went away, and Parliament was assured that the king had recovered. This was fortunate for the king, 
because one of the methods Simmons used was the straitjacket, which Francis Willis had also evidently employed. But it's clear the king wasn't 100%. Pitt, in 1804, was again prime minister, briefly, and he reported this after seeing the king. Quote, His manners and conversation were far from steady. He dismissed and turned away, and made capricious changes everywhere. He turned away the queen's favorite coachman, made footmen grooms and vice versa, and what was still worse, because more notorious, had removed lords of the bedchamber without a shadow of reason. This all afflicted the royal family beyond measure. The queen was ill and cross, the princesses low, depressed, and quite sinking under it. End quote. The king did not really bounce back from this one like he had the others. Months later, he was still speaking strangely, behaving oddly, sometimes foaming at the mouth. His health in other respects was declining. In 1805, for example, he developed cataracts, then untreatable, though not for lack of trying. Doctors at one point put leeches on his eyeballs. Ew. Still, he recovered enough to continue his duties, and in the middle of the first decade of the 19th century, a strong king was needed more than ever. Britain was at war again with France, now under Napoleon. These wars, which had really begun back in 1793, even before Napoleon came on the scene, were the second round of global conflict that occurred during the reign of George III. For much of this time, this war went badly for Britain, as Napoleon gained control of an ever greater range of Europe, though Britain's greatest admiral, Lord Nelson, had defeated the French navy at Trafalgar in 1805. In 1808, though, Bonaparte's attempt to take over Spain started to cause him serious trouble. By 1810, the armies of Britain and its allies were starting to gain the upper hand. It was that year, 1810, in which King George III celebrated his Golden Jubilee. Despite the ups and downs of his recurring illness, whatever it was, he'd managed to remain on the British throne for half a century, a tumultuous half-century that saw two world wars, two major revolutions, the American and the French, and the beginnings of a market economy and industrialization that would ultimately transform the world. But that same year, 1810, was also the beginning of the end for King George III. In the late summer, George's daughter, the Princess Amelia, aged 27, who'd long been in frail health, took seriously ill with a respiratory disease. She was sequestered at a palace in Weymouth and eventually brought to Windsor, but the doctors summoned by her father could only prolong her agony. Pretty soon it was clear that Amelia's condition was terminal. George's emotional agony over his daughter's illness soon gave way to erratic behavior. He cried for hours on end and took to mumbling and talking nonstop. At one point, a court official went to see him and found the king pacing and mumbling about the causes of his mental illness. He was overheard to say, This one is occasioned by poor Amelia. On November 2, 1810, Princess Amelia died. She was buried on November 13th in the unfinished St. George's Chapel. The grief for losing his youngest daughter pushed King George over the edge into a more or less permanent state of insanity. Soon he too was at death's door. By late December 1810, it looked like this Christmas was going to be the king's last. The exact nature of King George's illness puzzled the doctors who examined him, which by the end of 1810 filled a very long list. Though the king talked and mumbled incessantly and seemed to be suffering from delusions, there was some dispute, at least by the standards of the time, 
whether he really was insane. At times, the king's mental processes were clear, and it's said that his memory never faltered. But there were also disturbing signs of illness. At one point, George refused to believe that his daughter Amelia was really dead. He believed she'd gone back to Hanover. The royal family were, after all, Hanoverians. He thought Amelia was in Hanover and had been married, and that she'd never grow old. He also started to forget who he was married to. For a while, the king believed he was married not to Queen Charlotte, but to another woman, Lady Pembroke, and he lamented that his family wouldn't let him go see her. As in the previous crisis of 1788 and 1789, Parliament took a keen interest in the king's health. Testimony was given by various doctors, some of whom expressed hope that George might well recover. Others weren't so sure. By the end of December 1810, the House of Commons was working on a new Regency bill. The Prime Minister by this time was Spencer Percival. He carefully crafted the Bill of Regency and steered it through Parliament. The bill would restrict the powers of the Prince of Wales to grant peerages or pensions. Parliament didn't want the Prince, who was, wasn't really trusted, suddenly spreading a lot of wealth around to his friends. There wasn't as much of a fight this time over the Regency Bill as there was in 1789. And, as Percival found, this time the King was cooperative. In early February 1811, the Prime Minister went to see George at Windsor Castle. He informed the King that the doctors generally didn't think he was well enough to resume state business. Surprisingly, the King didn't push back. He told Percival he'd take the doctor's advice. He'd sign a Regency Bill if Percival thought he should. Percival remembered, quote, he then dwelt upon his own advanced age of 72, that it was time for him to think of retirement, that he must still, however, be king. He could not part with that name. He should always be ready to come forward if he was wanted. End quote. On February 5, 1811, King George III signed the Act of Regency. The next day, the Prince of Wales took an oath as the regent. The Georgian period of British history was over. King George's illness had ensured that most of the second decade would be the era of the Regency. For several months it was touch and go whether George would or would not recover. His daily routine wasn't that different than it had been before he gave up power. George typically got up about 7.30 in the morning, attended religious services in the chapel, and often went riding. He'd often visit his daughters or go to the Queen's chambers to listen to music. He walked on the terrace or was taken for rides in the park. Life for British royals in the second decade was pretty dull, almost unchanging. One newspaper remarked, The journal of one day is the history of a whole year. On a spring day toward the end of May 1811, the king was well enough to go out for a ride publicly. The British people, who still loved him, clamored for a glimpse. One observer, Charles Knight, wrote this, quote, On Sunday night, the 20th of May, Windsor was in a fever of excitement as the authorized report that the next day the physicians would allow His Majesty to appear in public. We crowded to the park and to the castle yard. The favorite horse was there. The venerable man, blind but steady, was still in the saddle as I had often seen him, hobby groom at his side with a leading rein. He rode through the little park to the great park. The bells rang, the troops fired a salute, the king returned to the castle within an hour. He was never seen again without those walls. End quote. The reason why King George was never again seen outside the castle walls was because he relapsed. Badly. In July 1811, his behavior became violent, thrashing about almost uncontrollable. 
once more the King of England and the British Empire found himself in a straitjacket. His usual habit, talking non-stop so long he exhausted himself, and so forcefully he foamed at the mouth, returned. At one point he refused to eat. One of the princesses reported him stamping on the floor with his feet over and over again. Over the next few months, though, George's behavior became calmer. By July 1812, he was almost docile. At least he wasn't stamping and thrashing around, but he still often confused living relatives with dead ones. Most distressingly for his wife, Queen Charlotte, he seemed to have forgotten who she was. It wasn't his fault, but this was deeply wounding to the Queen. By all accounts, their long marriage, they were married in 1761, was generally happy, but George's illness had begun to strain it. The serious illness in 1788 and 1789 had terrified her. She hated to see her husband when he was ill, especially when he said hurtful things without meaning it, like when he claimed he was married to Lady Pembroke. There were also deep rifts in the family connected with the Prince Regent. George had wanted his son to marry Caroline of Brunswick. He did, but the marriage was disastrous. The two were estranged early on, and the prince carried on with a series of mistresses. Queen Charlotte often acted as her son's official hostess at court. The closeness of the queen and the prince regent was another wedge between her and George. The couple's daughters tried to intervene. At one point, one of the princesses, Mary, suggested to the prince regent that the daughters go to see George together and try to speak to him kindly about the queen. Mary wrote, I fear we can never make them a real comfort to each other, as all confidence has long gone but it is in the power of their daughters, if they are allowed to act, to keep them tolerably together. Ultimately, Charlotte began to sink into depression and melancholy herself. Toward the end, she would not see George unless in the presence of one of the doctors. Him not knowing who she was or not understanding that she was his wife shattered her. Incredibly, Queen Charlotte never saw her husband for the last eight years of his life. Her final visit to him was in the summer of 1812. Not long after, each of the couple's daughters, the princesses Elizabeth, Mary, and Sophia, sent letters of protest to Queen Charlotte, complaining about her behavior toward courtiers and attendants, and the upbringing of the little Princess Charlotte, the daughter of the Prince Regent, and his estranged wife, Caroline of Brunswick. Eventually, almost all the members of the family were estranged from each other, except the princesses, who seemed to stick together much of the time. I mention all of this because it's a testament to the ripple effect that the mental illness of one person can have on the rest of the family. The relations of British royal family members to one another is tangled as it is, but add an unusual stress like mental illness, and the whole family comes apart. The British public turned on the Queen. By 1817, she was being booed in public, a humiliation she thought she didn't deserve after decades of service and the stress of dealing with George's illness. Estranged from her husband, her kids, and her people, Queen Charlotte basically retreated to her small estate called Frogmore and Kew Palace. She had a keen interest in gardening and maintained the royal gardens in these places, which you can still see today. She died at Kew Palace on November 17, 1818. Most of her private property was sold at auction to pay the mounting and staggering medical expenses her husband was incurring. King George never knew that she was dead. By 1818, he'd retreated totally into a world of his own mind, and one that was remarkably cut off from the outside. Remember those cataracts I mentioned? They rendered him blind, and eventually he went deaf, too. Sometimes he was well enough to be taken for a walk on the terrace of Windsor Castle. It was on one of those occasions that an observer, one Captain R. H. Grono, 
saw the king in this state, what he wrote is very illuminating. Quote, I once saw George III walking with his favorite son, the Duke of York, with whom he talked incessantly, repeating, Yes, 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 Frederick, in his usual loud voice. His beard was of unusual length, and he stooped very much. He wore the Windsor uniform with a large cocked hat. The doctors walked behind the king, which seemed greatly to annoy him, and he was constantly looking round. End quote. Yet he clearly remembered some things and some people. There are reports that he'd walk around in a purple dressing gown and a fur-lined nightcap, having conversations with various government ministers who'd been dead for years. He could play the flute and the harpsichord. Evidently, at one point, George thought he was already dead. I have no idea how he thought he knew this, but some of the witness accounts mentioned that the king put on black mourning clothes in the memory of himself. Evidently, he liked to play with his clothes, spending hours fussing around with a handkerchief, or buttoning and unbuttoning a waistcoat he was wearing. Waistcoats in the second decade had a lot of buttons, so I could see this could be very diverting. Something like popping bubble wrap today, perhaps. There's a wonderful picture of George III that was made in these final years. I'm going to put it on the website for this episode. Remember, it's at secondDecade.net. But it's a little sketch of the king, and he totally looks like Gandalf the White from Lord of the Rings. Long white hair, flowing white beard, like an aging heavy metal star. It's awesome. Since the death of Charlotte, Prince Frederick, the Duke of York, was the primary family caretaker to the king. He sent regular reports to the prince regent about their father's condition. By December 1819, the Duke reported that George was failing fast. At one point, he talked and babbled for 58 hours straight, with no break. Then he was bedridden and could only take liquid food. The end was coming. It finally came on January 29, 1820. King George III was 81 years old and had spent 59 years and 96 days of that lifetime as the King of Great Britain. The former Prince Regent was now King George IV. He ruled only ten years, dying in 1830, but left no children. His brother, a younger son of George III, then became King William IV. He ruled only seven years and also died without children. Upon his death in 1837, the throne passed to his niece, a very young, proper, nice girl named Victoria. The rest, as they say, is history. The story of the illness of King George III is definitely a sad one. It was certainly a personal tragedy, and as we've seen, a family one as well. Not that it matters, but it also turned out to be a financial tragedy. Between January 1812 and the King's death in January 1820, the amount spent for doctors and medical care was £271,691 sterling. Converted into US dollars and adjusted for inflation, that's about $5,852,000 in today's money. That's a big medical bill. So, throughout this episode, up until now, I've dodged the big question. What exactly was wrong with King George III? It may not have been purely a mental illness. Throughout his life, the onset of his mental symptoms often accompanied being physically sick, and this has led some historians and doctors to suggest that the mental problems were actually a symptom of some physical illness. The leading candidate for what was wrong with him is a disease called acute intermittent porphyria. Porphyria, in general, is a genetic disease in which, now this is my layperson's understanding, certain toxins build up in the blood and body tissue. These toxins, among other things, cause a person's urine to be strangely colored. 
Other symptoms of acute intermittent porphyria include attacks of severe abdominal pain, rashes appearing on the skin, hypertension, sweating, and psychological symptoms like temporary delusions, anxiety, confusion, even violent acting out. This is basically a laundry list of George III's symptoms. Furthermore, there's a famous anecdote from around the time of King George's death in 1820. Supposedly, one of his attendants was emptying a chamber pot that His Majesty had peed in, and the attendant noticed a sort of bluish ring around the rim of the chamber pot. This evidently is a classic sign of porphyria, the discolored urine. Interestingly, if George had this condition, he might not have been much better off today than he was in the second decade. Acute intermittent porphyria can be hard to treat. We can deal with the symptoms themselves much better today, but there's still no cure for the disease itself. We've dealt with historical diseases of famous people before, here on Second Decade. Think back to episode 13, the one about Lincoln and his mother. Whenever anyone retroactively diagnoses a historical figure, there's always a dispute. Of course, there's one here too. In this decade, the second decade of the 21st century, a pair of researchers tackled the question of what troubled poor King George, and they claimed it was not porphyria, but instead a genuine mental disorder, some form of severe bipolar disorder, perhaps. They got there, apparently, by analyzing letters that the king wrote and counting words. Using long sentences is apparently a symptom of certain mental disorders as we understand them today. This isn't so far-fetched, actually. A lot of observers noticed George's odd use of words and language when he was ill. Remember the episodes of him talking for days on end? There might be something to it. What about the blue piss? Well, the modern researchers have an answer for that one, too. Apparently, the king's medical records show that he was being treated, at least at one point, with a tonic called gentian, which is made from deep blue flowers. It could have turned his pee a blue color. One of the researchers, a Dr. Peter Garrard, went so far as to tell the BBC in 2013, the porphyria theory is completely dead in the water. Supposedly, this theory stuck because it comes from a physical cause, a genetic disorder, and thus avoids the stigma of mental illness attaching to the royal family. I admit I haven't drilled into this issue in depth, but on the surface, I'm not sure I buy it. The convenient explanation for the blue piss seems a little thick to me, and let me add that piss becoming blue is actually not that common in porphyria. More often it turns red or brown. Brown pee is a symptom associated with King George as far back as 1788. Furthermore, how do you explain the fact that his mental disturbances so often seem to coincide with physical symptoms, especially severe abdominal pains? And skin rashes, these are common in porphyria, and there are many reports of King George exhibiting rashes during his periods of illness. I'm not a doctor, I don't even play one on TV, but logically this sounds much more like a mental illness with a physical cause. One last factor. In 1968, a member of the British royal family, Prince William of Gloucester, he's a cousin, he was a cousin of Queen Elizabeth II, was diagnosed with porphyria. As this is a genetic disease, this seems to me to be proof positive that porphyria is present in the British royal family. As the royals are prone to various other genetic disorders, hemophilia chief among them, which manifested itself in the Russian royal family related to the Brits, anyway, porphyria seems to me at least to be a pretty safe call. But, as I said, I'm no doctor. 
What we do know is that George III suffered from a chronic and debilitating illness that affected his mind frequently for many years. Far from being the mad king who lost America, George seems to me to be kind of a tragic figure. I have a lot of sympathy for him and for his family, despite all their faults. King George was not a bad man. Maybe he was a madman, at least at times, but that was not his fault. If his story can help us have some more understanding and sympathy for sufferers of mental illness, even if they arise from physical causes, so much the better. Even as a good and patriotic American, I tip my tricorn hat to King George III. If you like this podcast, please tell a friend, talk about it on social media. If you're part of a Facebook group, there's many historical Facebook groups, give me a mention. Leaving a star rating and a review on iTunes is especially helpful, because it will help other history buffs, like you, find this podcast. I'd love for you to contribute to my Patreon account, that's patreon.com slash seanmunger. In addition to my Patreon account, you can find me on Twitter at seanmunger, there's an underscore there, and my website, seanmunger.com. My historical sources for this episode include George III, A Personal History, by Christopher Hibbert, Viking Press, 1998. Music credits. The main theme of this podcast is titled String Impromptu No. 1 by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com, used under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license. This podcast was written and recorded by me, Sean Munger. Good night. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.